This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 4, so the fourth psalm. If you have one of the Bibles off the back table or that we've given you, this is page 448 and 449. Just a brief word of introduction before we read the psalm. Uh, We're not quite sure when this psalm was written, but Psalm 3, if you just look up in your Bible, you'll see there's a a superscription there that says, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And when you look at the, the themes of Psalm 3, 4, and 5, there's, it's at least possible that these three Psalms are a group that David wrote and prayed as he fled from Absalom. So that's what we had our brother Jeff read earlier um, from, from that passage where J- David's on the run and he is slandered and accused by um, the son of Saul. So let's read together Psalm 4. Listen to God's word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief When I was in distress, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. And put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. So we see from the very first verses of this psalm that the psalm finds David in a place of distress. He's calling out to God and he says, you have given me relief when I am in distress. He refers to these people who are, who are slandering, who are lying about him. He's very aware of his shame. How long shall my honor be turned to shame? And if we, if we relate this psalm back to David's experience with Absalom, his son, we can see some reasons why David might feel shame and even deservedly feel shame. If you can recall that story, it really began with David's son Amnon assaulting another child of David, a daughter, Tamar, who is Absalom's biological sister. When we think about this story, then we have to go even back to the fact that David had taken to himself many wives. And this was in direct defiance of God's command for kings. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Lord says, when, when, you know, foretelling the time when they would enter the land and have kings, that his kings should not take to themselves many wives. So David's already done this. He's got many wives. He's got many children by these wives. And so we kind of see the, the stage is set for, for difficulty to be caused. And it's, it happens when David's son Amnon assaults Tamar. Tamar was Absalom's sister. Amnon was, they must have been a half, half siblings. But Absalom takes this 
very personally and deeply that his sister is assaulted. And, he, and when David is told, all he really does is get angry and nothing more. So if you read the account, you read him getting angry, but there's no other consequence for Amnon. Well, Absalom is not content with that. Absalom plots for a long time and eventually lures his brother Amnon out into the wilderness and he kills him. He takes justice into his own hands. And this leads to Absalom being estranged from his father. He's exiled out of Jerusalem for quite some time. And so again, when we think of David's honor being turned to shame, in this case, it seems somewhat legitimate that he should be ashamed. His house is in great disorder. Right? He's got sons assaulting daughters. He's got another son murdering another. He's got a son on the run. This is not how a king should live. This is not how a man after God's own heart should be ordering his household. But then again, it would be a mistake to say, well, Absalom was right to do all that he did. There wasn't, he wasn't right to take justice into his own hand. After Amnon's death, Absalom began to plot to take over. And, and eventually David does allow Absalom to come back to the city and and Absalom begins this long-term conniving to gain the people's trust and then to mount an insurrection. So he positions himself at the city gate to hear the people's disputes. He earns their trust. He gets kind of a band around them. And then he goes out in the wilderness and gathers his followers and has himself declared as king of Jerusalem. And so once this happens and David hears of it, he hears that Absalom's got this this band of of warriors with him, and he's marching on Jerusalem. David and his whole household flee. They leave the capital city, and they go on the run to the east. They go all the way across the Jordan. So we have David, God's king, God's anointed, on the run from his own son, on the run so far that he, you know, kind of leaves the promised land, heading out into the wilderness. Uh, This is like a, a reverse triumphal entry. David's leaving. But again, if... As David leaves, we see certainly he's got some mixed emotions here, right? He's, perhaps he's feeling the shame of what's happened to him. He's also, though, reflecting back on another time when, when there, were, where there were two uh, sons who were, or two people at war, and it was him and Saul, right? Think about how David treated Saul, the Lord's anointed, even after David himself had been anointed king. Remember how David was so careful not to hurt the Lord's anointed. Even when David gets up close to Saul and he cuts off a piece of his robe, he feels guilty for doing so. And he he runs after Saul and he he bows down and pays homage to him and says, Saul, I I did this thing to you, you know, and I I shouldn't have done it. He's so careful to honor the Lord's anointed. Well, here, here, Absalom, all that's out the window. This is the polar opposite of how David acted. So David had some right to be righteously angry about what Absalom was doing. This background, again, it fits well with what we see here in Psalm 4. A man in distress. A man who is experiencing false accusations. He says that there are men lying about him and shaming him. So this enemy, like this man Shimei, who we read about earlier, saying, essentially, David, you deserve everything you're getting. You overthrew Saul, now Absalom's going to overthrow you. This is poetic justice. You deserve it. 
We saw how David answered with such great restraint. He's surrounded by his mighty men, and here's this heckler cursing and throwing rocks at him, and he says, look, maybe God told him to say that. Maybe I deserve this. I'm not going to retaliate. Now, there's a lot going on in David's life that's one of a kind. We have to be careful when we read about David that we don't just import everything about David into our lives. He's a unique man. He's got special promises that God made to him that God hasn't made to all of us. And yet, there's also much here that God's people can relate to. Think about God's people Israel. There were times when they had cause to be deeply ashamed because of their sin. And that there were times at which they were being uh, unrighteously oppressed by their enemies. So we see both of these things can be true at once. You can have reason for deep shame and you can be falsely accused. And so this psalm is provided in Scripture so that God's people can can worship God at times like that, at times of deep distress, at times when they have done things that have brought them shame, and and yet maybe they're being falsely accused as well. So this is a prayer for God's people to pray in the Old Testament. We we could imagine even God's people in in, uh, Persia praying something like this, can't we? When they are being lied about by Haman. And yet they're in exile for a reason. But it's a prayer that we can pray as Christians today too. We we know what it means to be in distress. We know how it feels to be accused of things that we didn't do. And we know how it feels to face the consequences of our own sin. These are both familiar experiences to us. And, And sometimes it's true that we experience both at the same time. Like you, you know you've messed up, but it, it may not be that you've messed up in precisely the way you've been accused of messing up. So deep down you know both are true, and really you know that you know, the, the truth is this person who's accusing you, they don't know half of what you're guilty of. It's tempting in those moments to enter into a state of despair. Like, what hope is there for me? I'm guilty, I'm suffering, maybe I deserve all this. But David doesn't despair here. And this is one reason why psalms are so helpful. I encourage you, if you haven't spent a lot of time in psalms, give yourself to trying to read and understand them and apply them to yourself as a Christian. See, the psalms give voice to our distress, but then they lead us by the hand to the God who gives hope. And that's what David does for us in this psalm. In distress, he turns to God. So this morning, we're going to follow David where he leads. And we'll see him make two moves in the psalm. His first move is to to lead us to have a big view of God. And then second, his second move is to command us to live in hard-fought peace. Those will be the two points of the sermon. First, have a big view of God. And second, live in hard-fought peace. Let's look at this first point, have a big view of God. We see David's big view of God in all of the ways he describes God in these first three verses. Just recount a few of the things he says about God. So in the opening line in verse one, he says, answer me when I cry, O God of my righteousness. 
So as the, at the outset, as David's sort of beginning his lament, he intentionally puts front and center this idea of righteousness. O God of my righteousness. The word my there is, is really important. Because it says that because of God's covenant with his people, and with David specifically, David knows that his righteousness is in some way a gift from the righteous God himself. So God's righteousness here for David is not something like scary, like you're too pure for me to look at. It's, it's somehow been given to him. God is the God of my righteousness. And that's why David cries out to God. Secondly, in, in, verse, in the third line of verse 1, David asks for God's grace. He asks for God to be gracious to him and hear his prayer. So he's repeated the opening plea, but this time instead of referring to the God of my righteousness, he says, be gracious. He calls on God, knowing God is his gracious Lord. And then in verse 3, David says that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Set apart. That calls to mind God's holiness, right? That God himself is set apart from us. He's, he's different than us. He's perfectly pure and, and righteous. In every way, he's above us. But this holy God has set apart the godly, his own people for himself. Implied in this is that the holy God has made a way for unholy people to belong to him. Right? That, that the holy God would allow people to come to him. We know from other parts of the Bible, like Leviticus, that he's cleaned them up. He's provided a way for them to be purified, to be holy, such that they are now fit to come into his presence. David says God has set apart the godly for himself. And the final theological statement he makes about God is he describes God at the end of verse 3 as the God who hears prayers again. So the thing he prayed for, verse 1, answer me, hear my prayer, he now says is a reality that God hears him. But no, so he says, the Lord hears when I call him. He comes to God knowing that God is not just the transcendent abstract reality. God is the God who hears prayers of his people. The Lord hears when I call to him. That's David's confidence. God is not distant and uncaring. He's the Lord who hears his people when they pray. So when we're in distress, our hope is not that there's a God out there somewhere who's in charge and gives me kind of a vague sense of peace. No, David's hope is coming from a specific understanding of God. It's the God who's revealed himself in his word. It's Israel's God, Israel's covenant-making God, who's bound himself to his people and invited these sinful people to come and have their sins atoned for and fellowship with him. David has hope because he knows this specific God. And he knows this God in all of his glory. So from the way David prays, we can tell that he's not just memorized a few facts about God that he's kind of reciting. No, he, he comes to God in a personal way, a way that 
is deeply bound up in his relationship of what God has done for him. And it's this knowledge of God, knowing God, drives David to pray and to cry out to the Lord in faith. I want to ask you, is is your theology as practical as David's is? Does your knowledge of God drive you to pray to him? Let's think again about those things that we noted David says about God. Again, he begins with this phrase, God of my righteousness, in verse 1. Again, if we think about God's righteousness by itself, it can be a fearful thing for unrighteous people, right? If I know I'm sinful and God is perfectly righteous and he's a just judge, I know I deserve punishment from him. But somehow, David says, God's righteousness has become his own, my righteousness. Now, given that, again, David is a sinful man. We know that from his sin with Bathsheba. We know from the things with this episode with Absalom. He is not righteous on his own. But he can call on God as the God of his righteousness primarily because of the covenant God's made with his people, with Israel, and with David specifically. Right, the Lord promised to be their God and to make them his people. And bound up in this is a promise to forgive their sins. If the people would approach him in the way that God had told them to, through the offering the sacrifices at the tabernacle, then he would receive them and have fellowship with them. Though ordinarily, God's righteousness would prevent sinful people from coming, but because of God's grace and because of the covenant he made with his people, Sinners can come to him, and they can expect him to hear them when they pray. We can say in in the Old Covenant, this is seen in a shadowy way with its animal sacrifices, but those shadowy sacrifices pointed to the New Covenant, where the full glory of God's righteousness and forgiveness is on display for us. So think about our our own record of rebellion. That, That should bar us from God, right? We should be all like Adam and Eve, standing outside the presence of God with an angel with a fiery sword, keeping us from coming back in. But based on Christ's righteousness, counted to us by faith, we have access to the righteous God. We trust that Jesus' life and his death on the cross, that doing that, he, he dealt with the sin that separates us from God. And so we can join David in crying out, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. We can pray this prayer on, the, on an even more sound footing. Because when we pray, we're really praying, answer me when I call, because, O God, you have justified me by faith in Christ. You have given me Christ's righteousness. You've counted it to me. So when we come to God, we may feel very guilty. We may remember all of the ways we failed and feel that we have no right to pray. But by faith in Christ, we can know we've been declared not guilty. In God's courtroom, we're innocent, we're righteous in God's eyes, forgiven of our sins, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so we can come to our Heavenly Father and cry out, answer me, and be confident that he does. So it's not too much to say that 
The doctrine of justification by faith is at the heart of a vibrant prayer life. If you believe that you've been justified, you're justified in order to pray and come to God. Because God is the God of our righteousness, we cry out and we trust that he hears us. If we kind of try to go a level deeper, why should God do this? Well, we we come to God's grace, don't we? Not because we deserve of his kindness and his justifying work. We, We receive it as a matter of a gift that he gave to us. And isn't this where David leads us in the third line of verse one, where he prays, be gracious to me, O God. God did not bind himself to Israel because Abraham was so awesome or because his people became so great or lovely or worthy. He did it because of his grace. He graciously moved towards them to save them. Brothers and sisters, we don't pray to a stingy God. When we call upon God, he doesn't respond the way we respond when someone annoying calls us. Have you had this experience of having your phone ring and you look at the caller ID and it's someone you don't really want to talk to and so your thumb kind of hovers like, should I press the, you know, just the end call button or the send a voicemail button or maybe I'll, maybe I'll slide to answer begrudgingly. That's not what God is like when sinners come to him. That's not what a gracious God is like. He's the God who seeks and saves the lost. So our Lord is like the father in the prodigal son parable from Luke 15. Remember what the father's doing? He's out there looking at the horizon. Maybe he did it every day. I don't know. It's a a made-up story. But when he sees the son, what does he do? He, He sees him a long way off and he runs. Dignified men who ruled over households, didn't run. The father makes a a fool of himself to go out and get his son. And he embraces him. And he calls for the the rope to be put on him and a ring to be put on his finger and the, the celebration to start. That's what our gracious God is like. He's eager to receive us with abundant joy and mercy. That's why David prays. Because he believes God is is that kind of gracious God who seeks to save sinners. Do you know God like that? Is that the God you worship? In verse 3, again, David says that God has set apart the godly for himself. This, again, makes us reflect on the perfect holiness of God, that he dwells in unapproachable light. He can have nothing to do with impurity. If things that are unclean and impure come into contact with God, they're struck dead. And yet, this perfectly holy God has made a way for the impure to be washed. We've already noted how in the, the old covenant system, this was done in ritual purifications through offerings. So animals were sacrificed. The blood was sprinkled on things. You know, even, even the tabernacle itself, when it was first built, it had to be consecrated with blood, you know, purified by the sprinkling of blood. And this had to happen repeatedly on the Day of Atonement. And the, the worshipers, too, had to be sprinkled with blood to be purified. 
Well, these were shadowy pictures of what Jesus would do. The author of Hebrews describes the difference between the old system and the new like this in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. He writes, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Our consciences may condemn us, Our sins may say to us, you're not godly. You've got the stench of sin on you. You can't come in. You're not fit for God's holy presence. But if we are in Christ, we say, God has set me apart for himself. He's washed me with Christ's blood. Christ himself who who suffered. He was without blemish to God. He's died for me. And so I come sprinkled clean. My conscience is clear because Christ has cleansed it. Christ took all of the things that, that dirty up my conscience. He nailed them to the cross. He bore them away. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, he has made me fit to be in God's presence. Do you believe that God has set you apart for himself through Christ? Do you believe that you deserve, through Christ, to be there? And perhaps you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, I know for sure that's never happened to me. All I have is guilt. Well, if that's where you are today, God would especially have you see all of the wonderful gifts he offers in his gospel. Here's what he intends to give sinners who are impure, who are dirty, who are guilty. He offers forgiveness, cleansing, purification. All of this is a gift of his free grace. And the greatest gift of all is to be able to know I belong to God. He's my father for the sake of Christ, his son. This is the the doctrine that we so proudly proclaim if we trust in Jesus, we belong to him. We can, we can go to sleep tonight knowing if, if we pass away in our sleep, we will see our God because of what Christ has done. Amen. We have that assurance. And this gift of God, knowing God this way, can be anyone's who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ. To repent means that you acknowledge and confess that your sins deserve God's righteous judgment, that God would be right to punish you forever because of how you've worshipped yourself and your false gods. And faith means to believe that Jesus took the punishment that you deserve. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, all the blessings of salvation are yours. Jesus himself says that to all who come to Christ by faith, God gives the right to become children of God. He says that, or John says that in, in John 1. To, you have the right to become children of God by faith. So because of God's righteousness and grace, because of God's sanctifying work through Christ, we can say with David's confidence, the Lord hears when I call on him. 
If you are in Christ, you know that. If you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, you can know better because you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we should seek to get to know this God. To get to know this God in all of his splendor so that we will call on him in our day of distress. This is one reason why it's good to become a theologian. You may say, well, theology is not for me. That's for the nerdy brainiacs. But no, this, this prayer of David is motivated by this rich theology, by what he knows about God. He knows God is the God who justifies sinners. God is the God of grace who pursues the lost. God is the God who purifies the impure. And it's because of this that he calls out to God in his distress. Do you know God like that? David would lead us to have this big view of God. Now, we spent a lot of our time this morning on these first three verses, but that's because they lay down a foundation for the rest of the psalm. But obviously, the psalm doesn't end at verse 3. It keeps going. And that's when David makes this second move, a command, really a series of commands, to live in hard-fought peace. We see that this rich knowledge of God that motivates David's prayer also provides practical directions for how we should live in this world, in a world of suffering, in a world of distress. So this cluster of commands is there in verses 4 and 5. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. We could if we wanted to texanize this, put y'all in front of each of these. These are second person plural commands. So y'all be angry and do not sin. This is David turning now to the followers. Maybe if we think about him on the run from, from Absalom, he's turning to those who are with him, his household, and saying, you've, you've heard these accusations. Be angry and do not sin. It's time to go to bed. Let's, let's sleep and ponder in our hearts who God is and why he's trustworthy. Of course, we can also imagine these words being spoken in the congregation of Israel and they're read when they gather for worship. They're being instructed and we are being instructed about how to endure the distress of our own failure and of persecution. When we take this group of commands together, their essence is, instead of unleashing bitterness or vengeance on others, Pour out your complaints to the Lord. Live in hard-fought peace. This first command, be angry and do not sin, is, is almost kind of infamous for, for how impossible it seems, right? When we get angry, we normally sin, don't we? We might be helped by, by I think the footnote in the ESV says, be agitated, or another, another translation says, be disturbed. So David here is saying we don't have to minimize the distress, the emotional pain that we are in when we're falsely accused. He's not commending some sort of stoic way of life. No, when, when you're falsely accused, when, when someone seeks to hurt you, it's, it's hurtful. It's, it's right and normal to be upset, even angry. But in that state of, of righteous agitation... He warns us 
to stay clear of unrighteousness. Instead of anger, David directs us to to ponder in our hearts, to think, to be silent, and to offer right sacrifices to God and to trust the Lord. These are difficult, aren't they? I mean, don't you find when, when you're really at odds with someone, when there's really a conflict, that it's, it's almost impossible to sleep? I mean, you may, you may lay in bed pondering some things, right? But they're not good things. It's usually, here's what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to answer that objection. Here's how I'm going to get back at this person. If there's a friend nearby, you're probably going to rant to them. Can you believe what they've said about me, how I'm being mistreated and maligned. You may be tempted to rail at God. How could you allow this to happen? We don't know for sure, but maybe David was tempted in all these ways. Maybe these commands come from knowing his own heart. But his commands point to a wiser way of responding to distress. However exactly we understand the silence David commends, Verse 5 shows us that this silence in our beds is a silence grounded in worshiping and trusting the Lord. He calls us to offer right sacrifices and trust the Lord. The silence David describes is a silence born of communion with God. This way, it really leads us back again to to the theology of the first three verses. The knowledge of God that leads us To cry out to him enables us to be silent, to not take vengeance into our own hands, to trust in God to vindicate us. Again, others may accuse us, but again, they they don't know the half of our sin, but God does know it all, and he's declared us righteous. We We can be quiet and not defend ourselves because we know The God who would judge us has has declared us not guilty in Christ. It helps us to see that all of our ranting would not produce God's righteousness. But by coming to God on his terms, by offering right sacrifices, we can fellowship with him and live righteously. I think for New Covenant people, we're meant to take offer right sacrifices to mean first and foremost Rely on the right sacrifice that Jesus offered. Rely on what Christ has done. So what we should ponder on our beds is not the the litany of our defense, but we should ponder God's gracious saving work, that he is indeed the God of my righteousness. We're meant to live humbly and faithfully in light of what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's tempting to think, well, this must all just be automatic. You, you, you think the right thoughts. You, maybe you do some deep breathing exercises. You get yourself in the right emotional state. You go through your theological handbook, and then peace comes. The silence David describes here is, is hard won. I mean, you can, you can hear it as he's instructing his people there when Shemai's accused him. He's, he's working through, well, maybe the Lord has told him to say this. It's hard-won peace. The silence on our beds, I think, may be loud silence. The silence of crying out to God. In the face of distress, we don't take vengeance into our own hands. 
We don't rant and rave at anyone who will listen. We wrestle with God in prayer. We strive to live by faith in his gracious, saving work. One, one danger I feel in saying this is you might mishear or misinterpret David to say that it's somehow sinful to talk about your struggles. As if David's command to be silent means everyone needs to suffer alone. But that can't be the case it just by looking at this psalm, right? It's a public psalm. If God had issued a gag order against sufferers talking about their suffering, then this psalm would be out of bounds, right? But this psalm is meant for the worship of God's people, for God's people to gather in a place like this and to pray it and to acknowledge we're in distress, we're sorrowful, we're falsely accused. So God put this psalm in the Bible so we could get together with God's people and pray about the distress we're feeling. We could bring these things right into God's throne room. So the silence commanded here does not require us not to share about what we're suffering with others. But the command for silence should make us a bit suspicious of all the things that come out of our mouths when we're suffering. It makes us aware of Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Now, this is countercultural for us in our world, right? We, we live in a world where, where victimhood is celebrated, where the oppressed are encouraged to give their voice to whatever they're feeling, and, and that's considered to be the most authentic and profound truth, is the, the truth spoken by an oppressed person. This psalm undercuts that. It reminds us that what we most need in our distress is God's grace and truth. So I think we should share our distresses, but share them especially with those who will point you to God, with those who will encourage you to bring your troubles to him. Listen humbly to those who point you to Christ. And we need to hear this because we're tempted to be like the people David describes in verse 6. He says, there are many who will say, who will show us some good? Don't we do this in our distress? We, we make a logical leap from our current distress to the conclusion that all good is abandoned. us. God has basically forgotten about us. There's nothing good for us in what we're going through. We look around at our circumstances and say, God, where is it gone? There's, where, where is the good things you've promised me? Show us some good, God. We're tempted to accuse God of abandoning us. The second half of verse 6 is a bit hard to interpret. Most take it as an interjection of prayer from David. So he's saying, you know, there are these folks who say, who will show us some good? Well, turn to God. Turn to the God, God's face and his countenance. Know that that is the place of God's blessing and goodness. Some take it as perhaps the faithless words of the many in verse 6. They're kind of saying in a faithless way, God, show, show yourself to us, implying that he's, he's abandoned them. Either way, verse 7 makes it clear that true joy is found in God himself. This is true all the time, but it's a truth we especially need when we're in distress. David says the joy of knowing God is greater than material prosperity. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. 
these people who are saying, who will show us some good? They, they have joy when everything's going great. But David says, I have more joy than they have. David is closing this psalm with a searching question. Is your joy in having a bunch of stuff, a lot of luxuries? Is your joy in having everything go your way? Is your joy in it being the case where others can look at you and say, well, that guy's a success. God clearly has blessed that guy. Or is your joy rooted in something less visible but more real? Is your joy rooted in God himself? This week I stumbled upon an interview with a a man who by the age of 35 had already achieved astounding success in the world of finance. And he spoke about how driven he was to achieve as a, as a teenager and then a college student. He was wise enough not to live for the luxuries of this world. He could see that they were empty. And yet he was enslaved to a relentless desire to keep achieving. He said, I had tricked myself into thinking that I had created in this elaborate machine of achievement. And once the achievement had hit, happiness would just start raining from the heavens. But he says the happiness never come, came. He just, he just kept on trying to achieve and kept on being disappointed. And he was living in fear that you know, the last mistake he made would be the mistake that would ruin him. He said that he quit his job at the height of his success. And he took this kind of two-year break with his family and traveled around the world and kind of tried to think through his life. And now he's become essentially a self-help guru where he, he writes about these things, uh, kind of particularly applying them to people who are, who are like him, you know, addicted to achievement. But he noted in the interview that, that now his, his addiction to achievement is really tied to how many likes and shares do my blog posts get? How many people watched my TikTok video where I'm giving this encouragement and self-help? He's merely just exchanged one kind of addiction to achievement for another. And sadly, he seems to be even aware of this, but unable to escape the trap. It's tempting to believe that joy can be found in what we have. Or maybe we're wiser than that, like this man, and we say it's what, it's what we can achieve. It's in what others recognize me for. If they see me as successful, I'll be happy. But what happens when we lose it all? What happens when we know that all of these joys have an expiration date? And we've got this psalm right in its context. Imagine how far it seems David has fallen. He was, he was the king after God's own heart, living in God's holy city, and now he's on the run, headed out to the wilderness. You would think if anyone would have reason for despair and think all, all is lost, it would be David right now. But he says... Even here, sleeping out under the stars on the run, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. Where does he get this joy? He's found something more real and more lasting than than any earthly wealth or achievement can give. He knows the God who hears when he cries out for help. He's got a peace that his insurrectionist son cannot touch, even on the run. 
he can lie down and sleep unafraid because the Lord is with him. Do you have this kind of peace and safety? You know you can't get it from the world, right? You can't get it from your 401k or from what you've achieved, from what people think of you as. We know those don't lead to lasting joy. Those are temporary at best. And if we build our lives on them, we will be tragically disappointed. We can only find true joy and peace when we look into the face of Jesus Christ. Christ can give it eternal peace. And the reason Christ can give it is because he descended for our sake to take the cross for us. I mean, think about the fall of David from Jerusalem to being on the run. How much greater was the fall of Jesus? He was in heaven at God's right hand from eternity past, and he took on flesh to endure the shame of the cross for us. He laid his right to glory aside to suffer. Think about the shame and distress that Jesus experienced, the lies that were hurled against him. Remarkably, we have a prayer from Jesus when he was at his lowest. A prayer much like Psalm 4, one of the Lord's anointed at his worst moment. In Luke 22, 42, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was in great distress. But he made his request to his father and trusted in his will. Here we see the prayer of an agitated yet sinless man. A man who lived in hard-fought peace because he entrusted himself to God his Father. Christ endured every indignity that the world could throw at him, lied about, tortured, and finally crucified, buried. And he endured all this, and he came out the other side alive, and he did it for our sake. And so Christ is able to give true, eternal, unchangeable peace to all who trust in him. Our peace is secure if we're in Christ, because Christ went through death and hell and came out alive. By faith in him, we're alive with Christ's own life. By faith in Christ, we are assured of the smile of God's pleasure. And so by faith in Christ, we can pray with David, the last verse of this psalm, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Christ gives the peace of a clean conscience. All our shame was placed on him. All our sin is forgiven in him. In Christ, we are made fit for God. In Christ, we lie down and sleep in peace and dwell in safety. In Christ... We are, our distress is turned to safety and we are made unafraid.
Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we, we don't handle distress this way. We turn to ourselves or we turn to entertainment or food or drink and try to forget our distress or maybe we turn to anxious toil and work trying to work our own way out of it or we turn against others and blame them for it. Father, we need your help. We pray that you will keep us close to our dear Savior, that we would turn to him as the the refuge of our weary soul, and we would know that in Christ we find mercy and we find peace. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.